welcome to the Editor's Monthly Podcast of AJPH. This is Alfredo Morabia. I'm the Editor-in-Chief and we are April 11th, 2017. This May issue of AJPH has a special section on National Public Health Week. In the coming interview, we will see what is National Public Health Week, why the American Public Health Association has opted to focus on climate change in 2017, why is the Environmental Protection Agency crucial for public health, and we'll go to Flint to view how the EPA can help. We will also discuss the future of the Affordable Care Act from a Republican perspective and follow the trajectory of a Somalian refugee in the U.S. healthcare system. We will end on a high note, exploring what can be a 21st century vision for public health progress. So let's ask Dr. Susan Pollan. She is Associate Executive Director for Public Affairs and Advocacy with the American Public Health Association. Good morning. Good morning, Susan Pollan. So tell me, what is the National Public Health Week? National Public Health Week is the first full week in April, and it is a celebration of public health. It's the opportunity for the public health community to educate the public, to educate their peers about what public health is, how it impacts people's life on a day-to-day basis, and what we need to do moving forward to assure that we're moving toward the healthiest nation in one generation. So it's a question of education, or it's a question of mobilization, or what is it about, really? It is It is a question of all of those things. The goal of National Public Health Week really is to educate the public and educate peers, but it's also to advocate and to mobilize. It's to inform using the media. It is to um, talk to local and state and national um, legislative leaders to help them understand the importance of public health and how it impacts our life and how we can improve people's life through public health. Gotcha. And how did it start? It started actually in the early 90s. The president-elect of the American Public Health Association at that time was working with the folks in his local health department and put this together. And over the course of his time as the president-elect and president, worked with the APHA governing board to expand it beyond just one health department to the entire nation. But the most exciting thing happened in 1995 when then-President Clinton signed a proclamation saying that National Public Health Week is a nationally recognized event. It's the first full week in April, and the American Public Health Association is the coordinator of this national event. And I have one last question, uh, Susan. Isn't it a little bit ironic to speak of the healthiest nation? I I mean, shouldn't we, uh, how can we be healthy if the rest of the planet is not healthy? Shouldn't we be the healthiest planet on the universe, rather? Well, we really do have um, an aspirational goal for the United States, which is to lift up, because right now we are spending a lot of money on health, but not on health care, but not seeing those results. But it is never about bringing any other country down to our level. It is taking the best practices from all around the world and trying to apply them here in the United States and support and work with other countries to assure that they have the resources and um, that they need and that they can teach us where, with all the things that they're doing right that we are not. So it is truly about creating a healthy planet. 
but it is also recognizing that the United States really needs to do so much more than other countries so we can learn so much from other countries. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Susan. Have a good day. I have now Dr. Georges Benjamin, the executive director of APHA, who signs the editor's choice in this May issue of AJPH. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, on this Saturday morning podcast for AJPH. Why, why did you choose to focus your editorial on climate change? Well, you know, I believe that climate change is the most important public health problem that we have. It impacts so much of our health and so much of our daily lives that it's important for the public health community to really get engaged in addressing climate change. And does the current situation uh, have changed APHA priorities in terms of climate change, given all the decisions that may be taken at the governmental level? Yes, as you know, the new administration has not been supportive of uh, the science of climate change. And so it really beholds us as an association to redouble our efforts both to educate the public, to engage the scientific community. Uh, Otherwise, we'll just take an enormous step back because we don't have the support of our government. And on this topic, uh, there was the cancellation of uh, a meeting that APHA had organized with CDC on on climate change. And finally, uh, you organized it with Vice President Al Gore on February 16th. Can you tell us what happened behind the scenes? Well, we have been talking with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention about other ways to hold that meeting. Um, But it became public that the meeting was not going to occur. And I literally got a call from Vice President Gore who said, you know, Doc, we really need to make this meeting happen. Um, And I said, yes, sir. And he talked with President Carter, uh, who let us use the Carter Center, and the Turner Foundation, who helped find some funding for it. And the meeting was on. So we actually had a a shorter meeting, um, went from three days to one day. But it was an amazing uh, opportunity to, to really begin to kick our year off climate change and health and to uh, move the science forward. And Dr. Benjamin, one last question. What's coming uh, this year uh, with respect to uh, climate change initiative uh, from uh, APHA? Well, each month we're celebrating a different concept. Uh, So, uh, for example, February was our Environmental Justice Month, and then later in the fall we'll have a a month on mental health. We're going to have our big climate change meeting in um, at our annual meeting in November, and we encourage all of our members to... um, Uh, get engaged and come to the meeting. Dr. Georges Benjamin, uh, thank you again. I'm really grateful for your time and have a great weekend. I thank you as well. Let's talk now with Tom Berkey about what is to be expected from the current changes occurring at the EPA level. Tom Burke is a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management and is director of the Risk Science and Public Policy Institute at the Johns Hopkins University. He served as the EPA science advisor under President Obama. Hello. Alfredo, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Hi, Tom. 
Uh, this is much better. I was getting worried. I, I was uh, using my Apple computer that I thought was better, but now I'm on my Microsoft desktop. So That's great. That's great. We have an excellent communication. What is the EPA? Why is it such an important organization? Well, the Environmental Protection Agency, when you think about public health, is deeply rooted in public health in, in America. Although it it was not established until 1970 uh, by President Nixon. It is the agency that allows us in public health uh, to protect air and water and our way of lives. It's, it's really a cornerstone of public health in, in the U.S., and its core mission is the protection of public health and the environment. Mm-hmm. And so you say 1970, it's a creature of the Republican Party then, right? It was, crea- it was created by Nixon, and, and it has, uh, throughout its entire lifespan, has had strong bipartisan support. And much of the progress we've made environmentally has come under Republican leadership, as, as well as Democrat. But, but it, it has been a bipartisan public health agency throughout most of its existence. What are examples for, uh, of uh, the EPA uh, successes in terms of protection of our environment? Well, if they, they are, there have been so many. Thanks for asking that, because probably the most dramatic one, if, if, uh, if, if you think about it, is the change in our air quality from the 1960s, where we had such problems with air inversions and smog. So when you see a nice clear day over the Manhattan skyline, or even out in Los Angeles, uh, throughout our country, we have had incredibly dramatic improvements in air quality. But it doesn't stop there. It also has impacted our wildlife. Most of our rivers are much, much cleaner right now. Uh, Migratory fish have returned. The quality of our waters has improved. The bald eagle flies in the sky again because of the work of EPA to reduce harmful pesticide applications, and virtually every community in America has seen public health improvements from the changes in air quality and environmental quality. Uh, But the EPA has uh, the possibility of enforcing the regulations on the different states? That's a very good question because actually most of environmental protection in this country happens at the state level. So I was an environmental regulator in New Jersey and working cooperatively with EPA, we had a state plan every year to enforce the environmental laws of the country um, and, and most of that happens at the state level. So state environmental protection and public health agencies work very closely with EPA uh, to address emergencies, uh, to address uh, violations of pollution standards, and to to keep an ongoing permit process to understand the major sources of pollution and keep them in check to keep our air quality as healthy as possible. Mm -hmm. But do I understand you well that the states have actually the freedom to follow or not to follow what's happening uh, at the EPA level? Well, no, these are national laws, and and so it's done cooperatively. And and for most regulatory programs, the uh, enforcement authority is delegated to the states. If a state is not complying, EPA does have the responsibility uh, for protecting public health in that instance. And and uh, and, and moving ahead with enforcement. Uh, the, these new steps that the the administration is taking uh, are, go, are bound to happen, or 
Can there be some obstacle on the way? It depends upon the specific statute, but they are based upon laws passed by Congress and in many instances also supported uh, by rulings of the Supreme Court. So mm -hmm. challenges to existing laws would, would definitely uh, have the same kind of public process with input. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so there are many ways to, to challenge or to not enforce an existing law. Um, but hopefully it's, it, it, it's tough to move ahead with a national rule. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it will also be, uh, a, a lengthy process to move backward, um, on, on a national an executive order from the president, for instance, does not uh, overcome a, a law uh, that was passed by the Congress. So, so it depends on the specific instance. I see. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Let's see a, a concrete example of the repercussions of a weaker EPA. Discussing with Mona Hanna-Atisha, who is a pediatrician at Hurley Children's Hospital in Flint, Michigan, she can describe the threats that the defunct EPA could have for Flint and for other U.S. cities in severe social and economical crisis. Hello, this is Mona. Hey, Mona, how are you hey, doing? Good, how are you? In end of 2015 and, and early 16, I think that's when most of the people were taken aback by the revelation about the uh, ecological disaster that was right. going on in Flint. How is the situation now? Alfredo, that's a great question. So, so many great things have happened in Flint, but um, for many people, the situation has not changed. Uh, so the people of Flint, the, the kids that I see every day in my clinic, still have to use filters, um, and they still have to use bottled water. Um, so we do not have an all-clear on our water. The 18 months that we were on um, untreated water significantly damaged our infrastructure. Uh, so our plumbing is, is, is you know, corroded, uh, even more, you know, damaged than it, than it was before because it was an aging distribution system. Um, so we still cannot drink out of our, um, out of the tap without a filter. Uh, so that has not changed. So there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger um, that, you know, we're about to approach our fourth year in the middle of the Great Lakes where we can't drink water out of our tap. Mm -hmm. However, um, since the onset of the crisis, since the realization that this was a crisis, um, we've been able to do a lot of great public health things um, to improve um, the outcomes for our children. Mm -hmm. So we, we definitely took the mindset um, from the onset that, hey, we, we can't sit back and do nothing for these kids. You know, we just had this population-wide lead exposure. We had the largest outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. We have a community absolutely traumatized. We can't sit back and just you know, research or evaluate what happens to this population. We have to be 
proactive. And that is absolutely what we are doing. So, um, you know, my focus area is the kids, and we've really been able to wrap our kids around with evidence-based interventions to promote their development and to mitigate the impact of this exposure. So, for uh, example, give me an example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For example, in Flint now, we've doubled the capacity of our maternal infant support programs, things like Nurse Family Partnership. It's an evidence-based national program, which we know improves children's development decreases ED visits, um, and improves kind of children's overall readiness um, for school. So that's been increased. We have universal early intervention in Flint, uh, and in Michigan it's called Early On. This is home-based developmental support that works with families to check a child's development and to provide resources. We have a new child care center that just opened, a zero-to-five center um, with high-quality child care, with parenting support, family engagement, um, and kids get two-thirds of their nutrition when they're in these centers. We have universal preschool in Flint, uh, which, is, which is incredible. This is free all day, all year preschool. In Flint, wow. we had no... Um, we had no grocery stores. We had no full-service grocery stores, which is one of the reasons we were hit harder by this crisis. We now have many nutrition interventions. We have a expansion of the Double Up Food Bucks campaign, which um, doubles uh, people's food assistance dollars. We have mobile grocery stores. Uh, my clinic gives out nutrition prescriptions um, to every single child that comes in. And my clinic, which sees the most Flint kids, um, the Hurley Children's Clinic, is actually on the second floor of a farmer's market. It's the only clinic in the country that we know of that's co-located in a farmer's market to address the fundamental issues wow. of food insecurity. It's Mona, awesome. I, yeah, it's absolutely, abs yeah, I gotta come. I, I would love to. But tell me, where, where does the funding come from? Ah, that is a great question. Um, and that is why we are cautiously optimistic. So um, a lot of these interventions from education from nutrition to healthcare, we also have Medicaid expansion now in Flint, um, are funded through a, a blend of sources for mm -hmm. state, federal, and a lot of philanthropic dollars. Um, but the, the cautiousness becomes, uh, comes because these are all time limited. Um, for example, our early intervention, our school health services, uh, the nutrition prescription program, these are funded for maybe one or two years. And this is not a one or two year problem. This is work that we need to be really maintaining for years, if not decades to come. And among the decisions of the new administrations, are there things that may cut some of these funding? Absolutely. So um, we are very anxious in Flint about the impact of um, the new administration's budget. Um, for example, cuts to programs like WIC um, and uh, after-school programs and Meals on Wheels. Uh, these are all, you know, support programs that we have in Flint, and these uh, very much target our most vulnerable population, which essentially is the entire population of Flint. So we, mm -hmm. we are anxious. We are also very anxious about... Um, what may happen to the EPA. The EPA is, has, is continuing to work in Flint to, to help us ensure that our water uh, will be safe. Uh, mm -hmm. We have still a long path um, to heal our pipes and to replace our infrastructure, so we need a robust EPA, uh, mm -hmm. and we definitely need, um, we need robust science uh, to kind of lead the way. Yeah, and Mona, there is, you know, when we talk about Flint, there is the, this tragic uh, component because it was such a modal uh, industrial city when, when General Motors were thriving and, and the unions were strong, and, and it's a city that has imploded. But do you see other, if I can say, sister cities in the country which are threatened by similar or 
analogous disasters? Absolutely. You know, there are, there are flints everywhere. Flint is, you know, a post-manufacturing city that has suffered from decades of disinvestment in, in infrastructure and in public health. Uh, we see we see cities all over the nation where um, government wants to run you know cities as if they were businesses and the and the, the focus is the bottom line. So this is this is not unique. This is something that is happening in many communities from the coal country to you know furniture manufacturing towns in the south. You know throughout um, the Rust Belt where where children are waking up. Um, to obstacles that are insurmountable and things as simple as, example, a clean meal or, or safe water uh, is out of their reach. Well, showing such a strong resiliency in, in such difficult conditions, this will make a difference, I'm completely sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you Alfredo. Yeah. We, we definitely, um, we are turning the story around. We are, we are a community, you, you touched on our history. There's a lot of mm -hmm. uh, loyalty, there's a lot of pride, there's grit, there's resilience. Mm -hmm. um, and we very much hope to share, you know, with the world that Flint does not mean disaster, that, that Flint means recovery. And, and we hope to use science and, you know, robust data to share in a few years how we're able to do that. That's fantastic. Bye-bye. Take care. What is the future of the Affordable Care Act from a Republican perspective? Let's ask this question to David Sandwald, who is Professor of Public Health with the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine, University of Utah. He was Director of the Health Staff for the U.S. Senate Labor and Human Resource Committee under Reagan presidency from 1981 to 1986, and later he became executive director of the Utah Department of Health. Yes. Oh, good. Hey, I hear you. Oh. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Dr. David Sandwald, uh, what does it mean, block granting? Yeah, that's a, actually something that's not new at all. That's been used for some time in uh, trying to reduce federal uh, responsibility and oversight and give states more flexibility in managing uh, programs. Uh, when I worked in the Senate in the in 1980s, from 81 to 86, we did succeed in getting three block grants, the Prevention Block Grant, Maternal and Child Health, and Mental Health and Substance Abuse. So what they did was gather up a lot of categorical health programs and into a block, and then had a formula where they gave states their share of those block grants based on their need and level of poverty and population. So uh, Democrats fought that vigorously and said they were afraid that states wouldn't effectively manage these programs. And so in order to get them passed, we agreed that the General Accounting Office would do a review in two and four years of, of their effectiveness and how they were working. And the reviews were positive. Uh, there were a few things that slipped through the cracks, but most all, overall, it was perceived as being better to have less administrative costs at the federal level less requirements to apply for multiple grants instead of all the programs in a block. So there's a precedent for this. And in fact, there, HHS now manages, as I understand it, about 10 such block grants. Excuse me, David, but does it mean that if you have a block grant, you can use the money as you want and it may not go exactly where it should go? Well, that's the fear that people have. But in fact, in the block grants that I discussed, there are 
requirements that they have to address the, the programs listed in the block grant. So no, they don't have so much flexibility. They could use a block grant to fund uh, road construction or something. Uh, it really mm -hmm. must be directed to the intent of the programs that were block granted. If, if they block grant Medicaid, what will happen? What would be the consequences? Oh, they could be many. And there, most people have a lot of misgivings about that concept applied to Medicaid because it's really not like the, I, I don't see much of a relationship between uh, Medicaid and the other categorical programs we were talking about, which are much more specific and manageable. Medicaid uh, is such a vast and, and uh, complex program, uh, and, and the misgivings on Medicaid block granting is that um, there would be even more variability among states than there is now. Now, first of all, people have to understand that Medicaid as it is is, in my opinion, a pretty difficult and flawed program. It's extremely variable among the states. Some have such parsimonious benefits and payment that it uh, and can only be uh, applied to the very poor that it is a, a not very effective program. Others have been generous in their state funding, and it's almost a lower middle class program in some states because it's so generous. So we already have a very uneven uh, Medicaid program. But if it were block granted, fear is that access would go down because some states could not sustain it or would not have the resources to do so. And um, there's concerns about long-term care. As you know, 70% of people in nursing homes are paid for by Medicaid. That's something that I haven't seen enough public discussion about. Um, there's uh, a, lot of, a lot of concerns that are legitimate if Medicaid were block granted. The conservatives have two objectives, and I, as I understand it, with block granting. Number one, it would reduce the federal costs over time, which is something they understandably are committed to because of deficit spending and, and uh, our national debt, and they'd like to get that burden off their shoulders to a degree. The second thing um, that uh, they want to honor is what they consider federalism or states' rights. They believe firmly that states do a better job managing programs at their region or their level and addressing population health at the state level, not the federal level. So those broad mm -hmm. objectives would be achieved with a block grant. But how you translate that into reality is um, very, very, um, it gives people a lot, a lot of heartburn for good reasons, because I think it would be une even more uneven and create problems with access to care. I understand. I'm really grateful for your time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. executive orders from the president raising boulders on refugees' journeys to the United States. I have asked Anne Philbrick, an associate professor at the College of Pharmacy and the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Minnesota, how great refugee health care is in the United States. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. Is it so easy to get into the United States as a refugee? Um, no, it is not. It's, um, it's actually a process that takes um, 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. uh, it starts with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and they may, they're made aware of uh, refugees in refugee camps, and they 
refer a refugee to a country, the United States included. Mm -hmm. Within the United States itself, it is operated or handled by the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, Mm -hmm. which operate nine resettlement support centers throughout the world. And then the process that they do is actually quite involved. First and foremost, they do go through a continuous screening process that involves the Department of State, the Department of Homeland Security, the National Counterterrorism Center, and then the Department of Defense. And this is a continuous screening process to ensure that um, these refugees do not pose a threat um, to the United States if they come into the United States. So this is not, you know, that first period of time. This is something that um, happens continuously throughout this 18 to 24 months. Wow. And and how many refugees resettle in the U.S. each year, uh, approximately? That is a great question. So in 2016, the U.S. admitted just under 85,000 refugees. Um, If you look at the previous three years, we resettled approximately 60,000 each one of those years. Um, And the quota for 2017 has a goal of Mm 110,000. Is there anything in the current uh, administration decision which would change the number of refugees? Well, that's a good question. Um, Obviously, refugees come from all over the world and not just um, the areas that our current administration is trying to ban. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this number would decrease if said ban goes through um, or if we would just increase refugees from different parts Mm -hmm. of the world. And tell me, what's the difference between a refugee and an immigrant? That's a great question. So an immigrant is a person that chooses to come to the United States, and this is usually due to um, opportunity. A refugee has no choice. Refugees are often fleeing their country because it is physically unsafe for them to be there, usually due to some type of outward persecution or war. If you take the Syrian refugee crisis, these people are leaving Syria because of the civil war there, and it is just completely unsafe for them to stay in their home country. Mm -hmm. And uh, do they uh, require a specific form of health care, or do they get the the usual health care that any American would get? More or less the usual health care. The first mandated screening is screening for, like I said, communicable diseases. But after that, uh, we're going to treat those communicable diseases, but then also look at the the patient itself and the needs of the patient. Mm -hmm. The one thing that is a little bit difficult is that they are, they're given Medicaid, um, federal funded Medicaid for the first three months of their Uh, time here. Mm -hmm. After that, usually a state-sponsored program comes into play. In Minnesota, it's usually about eight months total of Medicaid before they have to get on to some other program. The difficulty is that a lot of times there's a lapse between when they get to the United States and then when that coverage gets activated. Now, it does get backdated to their date of arrival, um, but there is this period where they, they technically don't have active coverage, and it's kind of a risky practice to provide them medical care um, without that you know, guaranteed active coverage. Yeah, I understand. And you actually uh, describe in your editorial a, a sobering case of a young woman who came as a refugee from Somalia in, in Africa. Can you summarize it for our listeners? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of the Murphy's Law of patient cases, and in that anything that could go wrong with this patient um, did go wrong. Um, so this was a early 20s female who was a refugee from Somalia that arrived in the United States in late April. In about mid-May, she was admitted to a neighboring hospital for a pulmonary embolism or blood clot in the lungs. And at this point in time, she was given the standard treatment, which is warfarin, and then anoxaparin, which is a derivative of heparin. Yeah, you had to anticoagulate her. Yes, exactly, exactly. Anoxaparin contains pork, and this patient is originally from Somalia. Um, approximately 99.8% of persons um, from Somalia are practicing Muslim, mm -hmm. so it seemed fairly highly likely that she was Muslim as well. And this religion has an um, objection to ingesting pork, which oftentimes includes medications. Yes. It took us some time, but we were able to find... Um, an alternative for her that did not contain pork. Um, about a week later, when she came back in, found out that she was pregnant. This warfarin can be very, very harmful to a developing fetus. Absolutely. He can bleed, actually. Yes, exactly. Um, so we had to take her off warfarin, and we put her back on um, a drug called Fondaparinox, which is um, similar to anoxaparin, but it does not have that pork content. Um, the the silver lining to this is that in February, we were informed that she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. Had she, you know, had she gotten pregnant when she was still in Africa, she probably would not have been able to, to give birth to this healthy baby boy. Um, and it's just kind of a, the benefits of having a refugee go from, you know, war and despair to the land of opportunity. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting. I mean, the lesson, you know, I derive from that is that there are difficult problems, but uh, there are solutions too. And uh, it, it must be possible to make uh, refugee health care in the United States great. And, exactly. Uh, and thank you. I'm really grateful for your time, Anne. And, yes, uh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The last interview is with Steffi Wohandler, who signs with David Himmelstein an energizing paper saying essentially that bold visions of progress can be better heard in periods of social and political adversity. Steffi Wohandler is a practicing primary care physician, professor in the CUNY School of Public Health at Hunter College, and lecturer in medicine at Harvard Medical School. Hello. Oh, hi. It seems to have worked this time. Uh, perfect. David uh, Himmelstein and you signed, uh, I would say, the most uh, upbeat or hopeful or confident uh, uh, paper about uh, the current situation. And you speak specifically of something I, I find, you know, very attractive, as a concept, is the 21st century vision for public health progress. So can you tell us more about this vision? Yes, well, we've seen tremendous advances in technology, not just medical technology, but important technologies like clean energy um, and communications that allow us to communicate with anyone in the world. So these are really uh, 
the potential for a new era in public health in which um, medical care is effective, in which we clean up the environment, in which we cooperate and move toward peace. And um, often the political situation in Washington blocks that progress, um, but we know from the past that you can often get through the, those blocks and move forward into a, a better world. And, you know, one of the advantages of being a bit older is we've lived through some pretty bleak political times and seen that they often uh, open the way for much brighter political times. Uh, I was a child uh, in the 50s and 60s when uh, we were at the tail end of McCarthyism. People were literally building fallout shelters in their backyard because they thought nuclear war, war was inevitable. Uh, we had uh, de jour, that is legal segregation in this country. I went to segregated schools as a kid. And yet that gave way to the 1960s um, when we got the civil rights movement, um, when we got uh, the women's movement, when we were able to stop the war in Vietnam, uh, when we uh, actually changed the immigration policy in this country from an overtly racist quota system to the current immigration policy. So um, we saw a lot of change, and that was ushered in by activism, a lot of it on the streets in the form of demonstrations, but also education, legislation, agitation at all levels of society to change things. So often these dark political times are followed up by new opportunities uh, for, for changing things. Uh, many of us felt that the Bush administration was rather a dark political time. Uh, we were, uh, the United States was waging a completely illegitimate war in the Middle East. And again, that opened up to somewhat brighter times under, with the Obama election. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not exactly a pendulum swing because you got to push the, the pendulum. And that's what we need to be doing as scholars and as citizens is pushing that pendulum back so that we can enter these brighter times uh, ahead. So what would be the, the, the new goals now for, for this time period uh, in terms of public health progress? Well, one new goal would be to make health care universally available. Uh, even with the Obamacare legislation, 26 million Americans remain uninsured today, and tens of millions more have health insurance they can't afford to use because there's gaps in their coverage like co-payments, deductibles, and uncovered services. So one thing we need to do is make sure that everyone has access to health care on an equal basis. But of course, as public health professionals, we know that's not enough. We need to be dealing with a lot of the so-called social determinants of health as well. We need to make sure the environment is clean, that we have clean air, clean water and, and slow down global warming. We need to make sure we have a society that uh, banishes bigotry against racial minorities, against religious minorities, against immigrants, and allows all Americans an equal shot at um, living a healthy life. So um, those are the things we need to be doing if we're going to get through the Trump era to oppose the Trump policies and get to brighter times ahead.
So do you think that there could be a progress at the state level if at the federal level the situation is blocked? I'm all for the states doing what they can to protect their residents. And certainly many of the states are going to be trying to use state tax funds to compensate federal funds that are being taken away from health care, that are being taken away from environmental protection, for instance. So that's great work, and I obviously support the states in trying to get closer toward universal health care. Nonetheless, we are going to have to deal with the administration, with the political situation in Washington. We have an election coming up in less than two years. We have a presidential election in less than four years. And uh, we need to be... Uh, agitating against those federal policies in the short term, and we need to be working uh, to elect more progressive people in the longer term so that we can legislate more progressive legislation soon. Not so, going to happen in the next 22 months, but, but uh, it, it can happen very soon if, if people are out there on the streets and in their legislative districts uh, demanding progressive change. Aren't there different types of concerns today with this administration compared to what we had in the 60s? Okay. Well, I'm certainly very concerned about uh, President Trump's uh, uh, at least verbal uh, renunciation of democracy. So uh, saying he might not honor an election and continuing to claim that voter fraud is a major issue. I'm concerned about those things, but I will remind you that in the 50s and early 60s, American democracy was not very democratic, that in most of the South, uh, black people were uh, restricted in their ability to vote. There were things like poll taxes, where you had to pay a certain amount of money in order to vote at all, uh, which meant black people in the South could not afford to vote. There were literacy tests that were applied to African Americans to prevent them from voting. There was actually um, overt violence uh, that was used against minority populations in a lot of this country. I mean, when I was growing up, people were having crosses burned on their front yards. So um, we have had times in the past where uh, democracy was threatened, and yet we were able to move forward into the 60s to a, a better democracy, not a perfect one, but a better democracy in which uh, African Americans were allowed to vote, minorities were allowed to immigrate, um, uh, women had much more of a voice. Again, we are not all the way there yet, but we were able to make a lot of progress against some very repressive and anti-democratic policies. So what it takes is we as public health professionals being involved in uh, fighting against the attacks on public health, educating about them, speaking out against them in our, in our professional capacity, but also we as citizens being willing to uh, call our legislators, uh, go to the demonstrations, um, educate our communities, because that's the, what it takes to build the kind of movement that can restore American democracy, strengthen American democracy, and allow us to move beyond the Trump era to something better. Mm -hmm.
Thank you. Thank you very much, Steph. Your confidence in our future is, is contagious, if I can say. And,、uh, and thank you very much for being with us today. Bye bye. Note that in the Spanish podcast, I interview Dr. and Associate Editor Hortensia Amaro and Dr. Arredondo about two interventions conducted among Latinas in California to prevent obesity one through a healthier diet and the other through more physical activity. All of the articles mentioned in this podcast are available in open access. Note that to be immediately informed about the paper soon to be published in AJPH or about calls for paper, follow me on Twitter. The music is, as usual, composed by Francis Jacob. Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at AJPH.org. 